You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk with experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. This week, we have a special episode. We just finished hosting another Fierce JPM week. It was an exciting gathering of some of the greatest minds in pharma and healthcare. So instead of inviting two new guests on the show like we usually do, this week I'll give you a glimpse into the Fierce JPM conference. So if you're feeling bummed that you missed it, then keep listening. In a little bit, we'll hear from Ramita Tandon, the Walgreens Chief Clinical Trials Officer. She talked with Fierce Healthcare Senior Editor Heather Landy about how Walgreens can impact drug research. But first up, here's a panel discussion on what big retailers have to gain by moving into healthcare. Primary care is one of the hottest sectors in healthcare. It's estimated to be worth around $260 billion. In the past two years, major retailers have pushed further into healthcare by providing medical services. Amazon paid $3.9 billion to buy the primary care practice One Medical. And Walmart began building its own in-store clinics. These disruptors will force traditional healthcare providers to change how they deliver care. Village MD, which is majority owned by Walgreens, has been making moves to become one of the largest independent provider groups in the U.S. It just signed a deal to pick up Summit Health, the parent company of urgent care clinic chain CityMD. Companies like Amazon, Walgreens, and Walmart, they thrive on making things convenient for consumers. So they could bring that consumer focus to healthcare. Fierce Healthcare Senior Editor Heather Landy hosted a panel during JPM Week. Her guests included Natalie Chabelle, the Research Director at Forrester, Tim Barry, Chair and CEO of Village MD, and primary care doctor Catherine Gergen Barnett. The four chatted about what big retailers have to gain by moving into healthcare and what these changes will mean for primary care doctors and for patients. Here they are. I am really excited to have this discussion and to really kind of dissect some of the trends that we're seeing in primary care and how it will impact all the major industry players going forward. Obviously, we're seeing a frenzy of uh, merger and acquisition activity in the past few years as major retailers like Walmart and Amazon push further into healthcare to provide medical services. You know, obviously, as everyone knows, Amazon is buying one medical for 3.9 billion. Walmart is building out its own health clinics. So, you know, broadly speaking, what are the implications of this for the future of primary care? Tim, do you want to take that first? Yeah, I'd love to start. I, I think uh, from the macro standpoint, um, you know, the, uh, our, our country has significantly underinvested in primary care for decades. And, um, and I think what we're going to be seeing um, as a result of more and more people starting to pay more attention to primary care and, uh, you know, as CMS continues to roll out more value-based care models and as other uh, health plans uh, continue to follow suit and introduce value-based uh, reimbursement models that are not just focused around Medicare Advantage, but also around commercial and Medicaid populations. I think we're going to finally have the right level of focus on primary care and a different level of investment. So I think this is all going to be net good for the totality of the U.S. healthcare system. I 
could not agree with Tim more um, in terms of the vast underinvestment in primary care that we have suffered as a country, um, really since the the inception of primary care, uh, but it's gotten more acute. So we know that at least um, 35% and maybe up to 50% of all visits are for primary care, and yet we only invest about 5% of total healthcare dollars um, into primary care. And, and that dichotomy is creating obviously huge um, a burden uh, on our patients and, and our country and the health of our country. We know we have some of the worst health outcomes. Um, and I know we could talk for hours about that. Um, but certainly I think that uh, COVID-19, and we'll talk about this as well, really highlighted the incredible need for primary care. I think as somebody who's done primary care my whole life for my career and deeply believes in the value of primary care, I think people who didn't have primary care really woke up to it. And I think our country started to see, again, all the disparities that came through. Um, And the last thing I'll just say, um, and, and we'll, you know, touch on, on this more as well, is there was a really important report that came out from the National Academy of Science, Engineering, Medicine last year in 2021, uh, which really showed that primary care is the only specialty where increased investment in primary care means better health outcomes, better population health, improved health equity. Um, so I completely agree with Tim that we are absolutely um, needing to take a very strong look at investment in primary care. And I know that we'll parse out, you know, where those dollars should go. Um, And I think there's a lot of advantages of things like Amazon um, coming to the healthcare market and some potential um, dangers that we need to be just aware of. Sure. I want to dive a little bit more into the frenzy of this M&A activity. And, and all this disruption. And it's exactly what inspired my team and I to incorporate retail health into our uh, healthcare 2023 predictions report, which was just uh, published last month. And in that report, we predicted that retail health clinics will double their share of the primary care market in 2023 as all these retail health clinics scale to deliver primary care. I think we're going to see more patients choosing retail health for their primary care needs because health systems are vastly constrained by inadequate resources. And as a result, they're going to fail to match retail's elevated experiences. Now, this is really no surprise. We already see an acceleration of growth. For example, 16 years ago, uh, there were only 29 retail health clinics, and now there's more than 3,000. And we saw from 2019 to 2020, the number of retail health clinics grew by 21.5%. All this data is fresh in my mind because we just wrote on this. Um, This was initially fueled by the need for local, convenient COVID-19 testing. But then two years later, we saw that this growth was really sustained, and it was sustained by ability to provide accessible convenient and low-cost quality care. As for cost, retail clinics cost around 30% less than similar uh, treatment at physician offices and about 80% less than similar treatment at emergency departments. So we we think the retail uh, clinic market size uh, is going to grow exponentially. It's right now valued at about $3.49 billion. It'll attract additional M&A activity for new retail entrants that are looking to join CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, Amazon, Optum United Health Group, and, and all this competition. And as they double in the primary care space, uh, the demand, we're going to see uh, health systems really step up their patient experience. They're going to have to. Uh, and in the meantime, we'll see patients flock to retail health to fulfill their everyday health care needs. Now, Natalie, you said in a previous interview that we're seeing the most disruptive and exciting time in primary care and healthcare history. You know, why are we seeing so much interest in primary care by these so-called disruptors like Amazon? Why are these primary care plays a smart move from a business perspective? 
sure, you know, at the service of it all, it's, it's a desire to make a profit, right? Uh, the annual healthcare spend in 2021 reached $4.3 trillion, and now everyone wants a piece of the pie. The pandemic also played a major role. It drove this huge rise of consumerism, the acceleration of digital transformation by about a decade. Empowered consumers are now demanding new experiences and value from their healthcare companies. And during the pandemic, we saw how retail companies uh, adapted to bring consumers this new level of convenience and personalization. And as a result, consumers now crave this seamless experience for their healthcare journeys as well. So in this new consumer behavior paradigm that we're observing, we see this big push for digital transformation, but more importantly, a focus on healthcare workflow and digital optimization. And retail health clinics are in a perfect position uh, to move the needle on, on digital transformation. We saw so many innovative experiences that were set up extremely quickly over the past two and a half years out of necessity. Uh, but still today, uh, we see this trend continuing to mount in healthcare and it's giving way to new disruptors like retail health. And they're all looking to displace existing health systems as well as business models. You know, I, I would probably add into that a little bit, Heather, that like in, in terms of, of people wanting a quote unquote piece of the economic pie it is like anyone who understands the, the nature for how traditional fee for service primary care is both uh, paid for and delivered. Uh, it knows that you're not going to be like running to the bank with all this money uh, running a traditional fee for service primary care model. As, as Dr. Gergen Barnett said, that the reality is that the, that the primary care physician in our country, when invested in properly, will deliver greater value. They, they, and, and that value is actually, frankly, part of, I think, what Natalie talks about in terms of the, the customer experience, the patient experience. Because, you know, I, I have yet to meet a patient in, in all 50 states who says, yes, I, I hope in 2023, I go to the emergency room 27 times and I'm admitted three times, right? Like there, there's a reality, which is that people, I think, have, have finally appreciated that if we're going to actually change the trajectory of this $4.3 trillion system, that is frankly bankrupting families every single day, just because they want to decide to actually access the healthcare system. We, we have to change the trajectory of better outcomes, reduce the total cost of care. And then the people who are jumping in now believe that the, the value-based reimbursement models, the risk-based models will in fact work, but only if we create a whole new level of investment in primary care, both from a technology, a data and resource standpoint. Yeah. Primary care absolutely has to be the front door through healthcare. We know that. We know that that's why, uh, again, there are so many disruptors coming into this space. I think it's a really wise space to come into. It's a needed space to come into. Um, we, as a healthcare system, as a country, have laid ourselves bare to that vulnerability. And I think that's um, a really important strategy. Again, the question and just Noticing even the language of this idea of consumer, right, versus um, and thinking about healthcare as a product um, versus a really relationship based um, longitudinal um, experience for people. And, and granted, we are not giving that to enough Americans, right? And truly, part of the data that's come out from the National Academy of Science comes in terms of the equity, comes through this idea that all people having that longitudinal point of care, usual source of care, right? That sort of um, 
experience from uh, the old 1980s uh, sitcom Cheers, right? Where everybody knows your name. You're really well known. Um, they know, you know, as a family doctor, I take care of multi-generations. I deliver uh, the baby and then I, I watch them grow up. That experience of healthcare is some of the importance of the true health of a human. And so how do we kind of ensure that um, technology companies, which again, have the opportunity to accelerate us. So I'm, you know, I'm vice chair of innovation. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have more innovation in healthcare and especially in primary care, but how do we make sure that all boats rise and that investment can really be felt through the whole system, especially for higher risk, um, based folks like Medicaid. Um, so I know we'll go into that more, but I just want to ensure that we're putting that piece of the puzzle in early in the conversation. Yeah, yeah, great point. So let's talk a little bit more about value-based care. Um, I know Village MD focuses on providing value-based primary care. Why is it so important to scale up value-based care within primary care? Why is that so critical to the future of, of primary care? Um, Dr. Hergen Barnett, do you want to take that first? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think Tim hit on it, um, as well as Natalie, thinking about the fee-for-service, and we know that um, you know, it has gotten us nowhere in this country. Um, and thinking about, you know, how we get paid, especially in primary care, how you get paid um, for things you do to people rather than for people. And it's also part of the reason that we have such an exodus of primary care physicians right now. Um, you know, obviously COVID-19 um, accelerated that for all of us. I think we're all feeling pretty crispy at this point, um, just exhausted. But I think the fee-for-service only makes that worse because you're um, taking care of sort of foregone care uh, that's happened for the last two to three years and then trying to still squeeze it in into a 15, 20 minute visit. Um, you know, and I know mental health care, we could talk again about all the kind of issues we're addressing. Um, so the fee for service uh, model absolutely um, is based on this broken idea. Again, I think that's very consumer driven. You get paid based on um, how many widgets you can you can get in. Um, and the value based care, and we're starting to do this happily in Massachusetts. I actually, um, having just come from a national meeting on primary care policy, um, where I'm always reminded. Um, that Massachusetts is, you know, um, ahead of the curve, even though I think we have so far to go. Um, but places like Massachusetts, Rhode Island, um, Oregon, uh, where we're really shifting in this value-based care faster in terms of, I'm talking about the traditional health healthcare system here, right? Um, and federal and state. Um, and where we're starting to be able to finally look, take, you know, population-based health sessions where we're looking at our highest risk patients, devoting time to them, not doing it in this widget-based mentality. Um, but we know that we absolutely have to get to value-based care. We cannot, um, healthcare system cannot continue in fee-for-service. And, and we all know that. I think part of the problem is Again, to use another analogy, I think about water skiing. I don't know if anybody's water skied where you're sort of behind the boat and then you're needing to go out of the wake and you have one ski in, you know, behind the boat and one ski out of the wake. And it sort of feels like we're there right now where people are really, um, we talk about value-based care all the time, but it's still based on fee-for-service. And, and part of that is, um, I think traditional healthcare system doesn't really know yet how value-based care is going to work and how it looks, right? So we need to continue to um, discuss sort of bright spots, create stories, um, and, and places like 
Amazon and Village MD, they can model that for us, right? They can say, this is where it really works. This is how it works. And and so there could be a lot of collaboration on that in terms of um, mitigating, I think, some of the anxiety and fear that the traditional healthcare system has on value-based care and yet is essential uh, for moving forward towards. So Heather, I, I would... Um... Like part of part of how I think about it is, uh, you know, as Natalie said, we spend four point three trillion dollars a year on health care in this country. Eighty five percent of that spend is tied to less than one in five Americans who have chronic disease. And so, um, you know, like, I, 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 the, the, the first off, it just sort of highlights the the element of inequity that I think Dr. Bergen Barnett is talking about. But um, but the reality is that. Uh, the the I'll argue the the single most skilled clinical professional in our healthcare ecosystem that can take care of people who have multiple comorbidities is the primary care doc. It's 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 what it's how uh, Catherine was trained, right? It's it's why she went into the profession was to sort of take care of the totality of the human body as opposed to the right shoulder, right? Um, and so, so I, I think there's really no other solution than, than primary care and a different model of primary care that really is focused on, on value. Um, and then I think there's also a, there's, there's a reality, which is, you know, part of the interest, especially with organizations like ours, is that it's been really frustrating to, to watch the, the hospital-driven models that have, you know, largely uh, brought together primary care doctors to, frankly, feed the referrals of specialists. Um, and, and as long as, as organizations like that are, are rewarded when, uh, when people are looking at the daily census and a full hospital means to them a good day versus, um, you know, a really good day being that, um, you know, the, the, the primary care docs are, are taking care of the patients and they're being treated well in the home and they don't need to access the ER or the hospital because we're, we're creating a better longitudinal relationship driven experience for that patient like that. that, that and I think that's only going to come from, you know, leadership in primary care. All three of you have brought up relationships and trust, um, which in some ways, you know, might be more important in primary care than, you know, in any other kind of uh, branch of medicine. But yeah, so it'll be interesting um, going forward to see if these disruptors can um, provide the, that, those relationships and trust um, going forward. So that is really all the time that we have today. But thank you, Dr. Gergen Barnett, Natalie, and Tim for joining me. This has been a really insightful discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having us. When we think of a pharmacy, we imagine a place to pick up prescriptions, grab a bottle of Advil or a tube of toothpaste. But as we just heard in the panel, major drugstore chains are offering healthcare services, and they are even getting into the clinical trial business. In 2021, CVS Health stepped into clinical trials, hoping to use its local community reach to boost patient recruitment and trial delivery. Last year, Walgreens and Walmart announced they were also getting into clinical trials. Why do these retailers want to get into clinical studies? Well, first, it will grow their business beyond pharmacy sales. But also, drugstores have close community ties and can leverage this to recruit more patients and make it easier for them to participate in drug research. 
there aren't enough people participating in clinical trials. A study found that in 2020, only 9% of Americans reported having ever been invited to participate in a clinical trial. And of those who were invited, just about half participated. And companies like Walgreens, CVS, and Walmart also say they can help diversify clinical trials. According to the FDA, about 75% of clinical trial participants are white. Many drug companies are trying to recruit people from different racial and ethnic groups. Ramita Tandon joined Walgreens about a year ago as the company's new chief clinical trials officer. She talked with Fierce Healthcare senior editor Heather Landy about how Walgreens can impact drug research. Take a listen. Well, hi, Ramita. Thank you so much for joining me today. So back in June, Walgreens announced that it was, um, you know, expanding into the clinical trials business. Why is this a good time for Walgreens to to kind of have this strategy in, in clinical trials? You know, during the pandemic, you know, we observed really the industry coming together to look at non-classical approaches to really engage patients, to ensure safety, and really to keep the trials going, whether using home health, remote or digital activities, or even activating local communities. And so, you know, during this time also, the COVID pandemic specifically helped highlight the role of the retail pharmacies in how, you know, we delivered healthcare services, including delivering over 250 million COVID vaccinations across the U.S. So, you know, as a trusted pillar of healthcare in communities nationally, you know, we believe Walgreens is positioned to address, you know, the most pressing needs of our daily customers, including now with clinical trials. So I think that during the pandemic, it certainly highlighted the need for us to look at different ways to engage our patients. And we heard patients and we saw patients reacting positively as we tried to keep the trials moving forward. Right. So how does Walgreens aim to change the clinical, the current clinical trials paradigm you know, how is this model different than an academic hospital model? Yeah, you know, our goal is to really bring trials um, to patients into the communities that they belong. And, you know, we're offering a flexible set of options to participate. So, you know, first, we've made some significant investments in our real world evidence engine, as I call it, whereby we are combining our pharmacy records that we have on our patients with um, through our partnership patient's EMR records, both structured, unstructured information on that patient. As we bring these pieces and parts together, it really is to help us understand the patient's longitudinal patient journey. And that information or that insight allows us to be much more precise in how we identify the right patients for trials and how we then engage patients go forward during the clinical trial journey. And so As we start to look at identifying those right patients, make the outreach, we're putting in place a flexible set of options for patients to participate. And what that means is um, we are looking at activating a number of our physical pharmacies uh, and our locations that have private health rooms, whereby a patient can come into a local pharmacy, have an opportunity to talk to um, their local pharmacist first and foremost, to be educated on the fundamentals of clinical trials. You know, Heather, there's lion's share of this nation that don't even understand what a clinical trial is. So we recognize at Walgreens, we're going to have to spend the time within these local communities to educate and drive more awareness of the benefits 
of clinical trials and what their participation means in the overall aspirations of collecting more representative information on, on the patient population. So we've activated our locations as clinical trial centers. Um, we also are offering more of a hybrid approach. And what that means is there's going to be aspects of the clinical trial workflow that we can digitize. For example, we can screen the patient remotely. We can bring forth digital capabilities that allows a patient to be at their home and to be able to fulfill some of the commitments of a clinical trial, but still also be able to come to a local pharmacy and be able to get some of those clinical trial visits completed as well. And then finally, um, you know, obviously during the pandemic, home health care was a big part of a solution to be able to engage the patient and keep the trial moving forward. And through our acquisition of CareCentrics, we had the opportunity to also deliver home health care services if a particular clinical trial and its protocol allows for that to happen. So we believe when we identify the right patient, um, we are offering a flexible set of options for the patient to participate. Now, the one thing I want to be able to stress and emphasize is that we recognize um, many of our trials do require, you know, uh, academic medical centers or other physician provider organizations, especially for more complicated um, disease indications. And, you know, we've been very clear and upfront, we are not here to decouple that patient and provider relationship. In fact, at Walgreens, we believe that, you know, by activating our locations as clinical trial centers, it serves as an option. And we are actively partnering with a number of AMCs across the nation as we work at ways to make sure that patients um, are retained during the course of the trial. And that might mean leveraging our, you know, Walgreens Clinical Trial Center to do some of the follow-up visits after the patient's being seen at, a, at an AMC, for example. Just 3% of the nation's physicians and patients take part in clinical trial research that leads to new therapies, according to data from the FDA. Nearly 80% of clinical trials fail to meet enrollment, enrollment timelines. So how does Walgreens plan to leverage its technology and its data and its capabilities to improve recruitment and engagement with patients? Yeah, I mean, look, that's a staggering statistic. And I think, you know, we've been all talking about this. We're all aware of the fact that, you know, less than 3% of this nation participates in clinical research. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done at the community level to raise the bar on educating and driving more awareness of what a clinical trial is and um, the value of their participation in, in clinical trials. So look, you know, obviously we're making significant investments in bringing together the right data assets so we can identify the right patients for trials. It makes um, really no sense to send out mass, you know, outreach to patient populations where you know, trials, you know, are not right for a specific patient population. So, you know, from a real world evidence perspective, we continue to make investments in making sure that we're being more precise and, um, you know, uh, efficient in how we identify the patient uh, and be able to engage the patient. Because keep in mind, during the COVID-19 pandemic, we had tremendous learnings along the way. It was not a one size fits all strategy across all communities. In fact, we learned um, that some communities needed more work in terms of, you know, um, tackling some of the vaccine hesitancy that we saw within our communities. That goes the same for clinical trials. And so, 
you know, we believe activating our local presence um, and using our, our local pharmacies and our stores and our pharmacy care teams to be able to educate and um, empower the patient communities so they feel comfortable and to make the decision to participate is one way that we at Walgreens are looking at tackling um, the issue around uh, access and, and participation. Secondly, um, listen, I'm very excited about the recent inclusion of the clinical trial diversity and modernization text in that in the 20, you know, 2023 omnibus bill. And look, in my opinion, it serves as a catalyst for widespread change as it requires industry sponsors to really develop and implement diversity action plans and really starts to put the onus on us as an industry to make sure that we are reaching out to communities and patient populations that have never been tapped into for clinical research in the past. And so this legislation, in my opinion, is a huge game changer for the industry and it positions Walgreens and other community pharmacies in really an optimal position to tackle the barriers to diversity and inclusion. And so again, we plan to use our local presence, our deep understanding of our patients and communities as we look to transform trial operations and ultimately improve the experience as patients participate in clinical trials. Yeah, so just to follow up on the, uh, the issue of diversity in clinical trials, the FDA and the industry is, is you know, starting to take steps to increase racial and ethnic diversity in clinical research, given that 20% of drugs have a variation in responses across ethnic groups, yet 75% of clinical trial participants are white. So why do you believe Walgreens can help move the needle to improve equity in clinical research and, and help to break down those barriers for diverse patient populations? Yeah, the first step really is around making sure as we get protocols, you know, from manufacturers, you know, we do a very comprehensive review each, of each protocol. And when we start to make the recommendations to our industry uh, partners, first and foremost is looking at regions and patient populations, again, that have never been tapped into. And so that's the first step is to make sure we're providing the recommendations. Now, we know, you know, classical clinical trials and some of the classical um, methodologies that have been used um, in the past and in today, we're tapping into the same AMCs, tapping into the same provider groups. And that doesn't help with making sure we're looking at, you know, um, bringing forth a representative patient population across the nation. So again, the investments that we're making from a real world evidence and the assets that we're bringing to bear to make sure that when we speak and engage with our industry partners, we're making sure we're bringing forth those communities that have never been tapped into. Um, and more importantly, um, looking at ways to um, partner, you know, within our local communities, because we recognize as we are looking to tackle some of these core issues, move the needle around access, diversity, and inclusion, it's, it's not going to be done alone. We are making some intentional decisions around key partnerships to be able to help us unlock, um, you know, the work within our communities so that we can start to really educate patient populations um, as they get approached for potential clinical trials. So we believe this parallel path of, you know, raising the bar and creating that surround sound within the communities, along with making sure that we're being more um, intentional and in picking out the right patients for trials um, in communities that have never been tapped into before. So what do you anticipate will be the biggest challenges in this work to disrupt the clinical trials model? 
you know, it's it's about making sure that um, the momentum that we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic that, you know, forced the industry to look at non-traditional approaches and looking at different ways to engage the patients and really bring trials to where the patients belong in the communities, um, we want to make sure that that momentum continues. Um, you know, obviously, as, uh, you know, humans, we're very comfortable in going back to what's comfortable, but um, we want to make sure that we carry forward this momentum. Um, we are, for that reason, you know, leveraging our physical footprint, leveraging all the assets and the investments that we've made at Walgreens um, to make sure that we're bringing forth innovative ideas and exploring these approaches and making sure that we truly are bringing trials to patients' communities. And so, um, so that's one piece, is just to make sure the industry continues with that momentum. But then the second piece is around the community activation. And that, I think, is going to be very important because, you know, again, what we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic, there was a lot of hesitancy in trying to, you know, um, mobilize the efforts around the vaccinations. And so for us, it's around making sure we're making the investments with the communities, either through partnerships or investments we're making to activate these communities so that they feel comfortable and they're enabled. And this is why we're implementing what I call the triple E uh, framework, which is, um, you know, um, empowering, which is sort of engaging, uh, empowering and enabling our communities so that they feel comfortable um, and have enough information to be able to say, yeah, um, I can see why clinical trials um, is something that I should participate my participation will drive value, but more importantly, we want to make sure that clinical trials is seen as a care option across all communities uh, across the U.S. Well, Ramita, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Heather. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hudson. You can find out more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.